You're now experiencing data with Brian O'Neill. Experiencing data explores how product managers, analytics leaders, data scientists, and executives are looking at design and user experience as a way to make their custom enterprise data products and analytics applications more useful, usable, and valuable. And now, here's your host, the founder and principal of Designing for Analytics, Brian O'Neill. Welcome back, everyone. This is Brian O'Neill, and this is Experiencing Data. Uh, today, I've got Rob May on the phone. You're still there, right? Yes. Thanks for having me. Yeah. I can't wait to, to chat with you uh, about a little bit about the VC side of AI products. Um, so just for folks that don't know, I learned about Rob through uh, your great uh, email newsletter that you put out. Uh, I think it's about weekly. Um, there's great if you're just kind of interested in news about what's going on with artificial intelligence technology, uh, it's really great. Just kind of quick primer on, you know, highlights uh, in, in the field. So definitely check that out. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're you're a somewhat new general partner at PJC, which is a venture company in Boston. Correct? Yes, that's correct. I've been here as a general partner since November, but I've been investing for uh, for about five years. So I've made 74 angel investments over the previous five years before joining PJC. Right, right. And you're specializing in kind of AI as kind of a focal area, is that correct? I am. So I, I focus here on what we call machine intelligence and then um, related fields this would be robotics and neurotechnology. Got it, got it. So um, today I, I, I thought it'd be really interesting to get your, your perspective uh, in part because I think there's, um, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of hype in the AI space, but I think what might be really interesting to some of our listeners is that, you know, there there are our digital native companies and, and the startups that are pitching, you know, people like you for funding to to see their vision come true. And then you have people working at legacy, you know, non-digital native companies that are also trying to, you know, turn AI into value uh, internally. And so I thought it might be interesting for them to kind of people maybe more in that category to hear what you know, what kinds of stuff are coming to you and how you're perceiving that from a business standpoint. Uh, and then also how user experience ties into making sure that these types of, you know, artificial intelligence products and stuff actually still come back to being a viable product in the market where, you know, whether it's AI or not, there has to be some type of value being produced. Uh, and so that's kind of what I wanted to talk about today. But first, what is the craziest AI pitch you've gotten recently since you came on board? <laughs> Oh man, there's a there's a lot of them. I think um, I you know I think maybe the craziest, and, and this is one that's you know crazy in a good way that we actually thought about doing uh, was a company that's looking to build a sort of trust layer over the internet using AI that's just going to determine you know you use machine learning models to determine what's a deep fake and what's fake news and and sort of all this other kind of stuff. And it was. Um, very aggressive and very technically challenging. Like, I'm not even sure you could actually do it. Mm -hmm. But a very ambitious project. Wow. And that would sit across like your, you know, if I'm a person, it, it would be something like fo it follows me and kind of improves my my experience and the safety of my data and all that as, as I, you know, cruise the web. Well, I, I think the way they were thinking about it more is that it's something that content providers would use and plug into um, via an API. So that um, you know they could see what other content was related to their stuff, were people misposting their stuff, um, you know, just things like that. Think, think about it almost like a fact-checking 
machine learning driven kind of API for content. Got it. Got it. Cool. One of the things you've been you know, talking about on your newsletter, which I thought was really interesting, is services as software. And just to be clear, I'm not talking about SaaS, the software as a service, but it's it's kind of the reverse. So can you give us a quick couple sentences on what that is and 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 why you're seeing this as a repeatable model? Yeah. So I made an angel investment a couple of years ago in a company called Botkeeper. And Botkeeper took accounting and made it scalable. And they did that by taking a bunch of accountants. And if you have an all digital infrastructure, if you have uh, you know, NetSuite or QuickBooks Online, if you have Extensify.com, if you use Bill.com, then, um, you know, they're trying to replicate the experience of just having a remote bookkeeper. So you can imagine a human doing this and you email them, uh, you know, receipts and you, they ask you how to classify transactions and they send you financial statements and they ask you questions. And, um, and so if you have that kind of experience, uh, then what Botkeeper does is they basically say, look, we're more accurate than a normal bookkeeper and we're half the price. And the way they do that is by constantly automating more and more of the bookkeeping tasks by watching what the accountants do that work for them. They do employ some bookkeepers and, uh, and then building machine learning models of them. So when you think about automation in a company, one of the reasons that we haven't automated more work is because there are lots of things that we could automate, but we don't have a data set to automate them. And so Botkeeper, by collecting this data set and doing the automation, uh, can now scale a services business like accounting that used to rely just on humans in ways that you could scale software businesses previously. So what's, what attracted VCs so much to software businesses was their scalability and their gross margins. And then software as a service came about because it was a new sort of deployment and operational model where it all ran in the cloud and you just needed the browser to set it up. And so that was easier. And so we sort of flipped that on its head and said, hey, this is services as software. It's a logical extension of software eating the world, software eats industry after industry. And now it's eating industries using machine learning that are primarily human labor focused. And so I think it's one of my favorite models to invest against. And it doesn't have to be all digital. You could also think about it in terms of like restaurant automation and some of those things where if you keep the interface the same to the customer, the service that you're providing, you strip it out, everything behind that. If it's digital, it's an algorithm. And if it's physical, then, then you use a robot. So, you know, I give the example in the post I wrote about uh, a haircut robot, which I should be clear, I, I just use that as an example because it's actually not a great fit, I think, for, for where you'd want to automate. Um, I don't think you get all the benefits, but you can imagine if, um, you know, if, if much of your haircut uh, process is the same and then you, know, you had this robot do, uh, do a big part of it. Um, or you could think about a, a, a kitchen, right? You've seen some of these restaurants where, you know, maybe you still have a waiter or a waitress, but um, all the food is prepared by a machine. Um, and that, you know, improves the gross margins and makes it more scalable. So yeah, very interesting business model. Got it. It, it seems to me that that the, this could be a tricky strategy to get right because, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but the it would take a lot of knowledge about the domain of accounting as opposed to just looking at the the data, right? Because there was obviously some training that went on in order to learn about how accountants make decisions. But I'm curious about, we all know accountants can get very creative with <laughs> with how they record, you know, numbers and how, you know, your tax yeah. liability and all of that. And, and I'm curious 
how you capture all of that. Because if I, I could see someone just, I guess what I'm saying is I could see someone just looking at, you know, a data set that reflected here were decisions that were recorded by accountants, but it, it would lack the thinking that went into those. And so at best, you'd have to impute or imply why did they arrive at these decisions? And it feels like it would miss something. What, you know, definitely some efficiencies, like for really repeated, you know, manual stuff. But it seems like it might miss some things unless you really understood accounting. I don't know. Yeah. And, and so the question is, how high can you go up the accounting work stack, right? And, and part of the reason that um, this hasn't been automated before is because, so, so even if you think about the bottom of the work stack, right? If you think about just classifying a transaction, okay, I got a receipt. Um, where does the receipt go and what do I classify it as? Well, if you've had to deal with finance in any kind of role, you know that this is like, this happens a lot in big companies and small companies where they're like, okay, that was, um, you went to lunch with, with, you know, you submit a receipt from a restaurant for lunch and it's like, okay, was that a marketing expense or sales expense where you were with a potential customer? Was that a, um, uh, you, you know, an expense where you, you took out an employee for lunch to talk about something, right? And then how do you classify that? Was that, um, you know, were you meeting with an investor? And, and was that, so there's lots of different ways to classify that single expense. And, and the same thing with like, let's say that you, you get a bill from Amazon.com, right? You're from Amazon and you're a bookkeeper and you're like, okay, well, this is office supplies, this is office supplies. And now you get a bill from Amazon.com where somebody's using AWS and we're using servers for the first time. Well, your natural inclination as a bookkeeper is like, oh, well, that's an, that's an office supplies expense because when I see Amazon, uh, bills, it's office supplies, and you would be incorrect in how you would categorize that. But that kind of thing happens all the time. It turns out bookkeepers are actually about 89% accurate, human bookkeepers. Um, and so the more experience you have, the more accurate you'll be, the more things you can see. But as a bookkeeper, it's hard to have a lot of experiences. As a machine, you can have, you know, hundreds of thousands of companies that you do the books for. And so you can build a giant machine learning model that knows how to categorize all this stuff because it's seen variants of it. And so the question is really, and this is what's hard to, to your first point about this, what's hard about this business model is two things. Number one, finding use cases where you do have enough data to train a model and, it's, and it is trainable, right? It's not super complex, high level cognitive you know, thinking. And then, uh, you know, and then the second thing is figuring out how to adjust your workflows to collect that data set because the, the services and software business model is not one like we've seen previously where you have data sets laying around, right? So you think about like a, uh, a machine learning model to detect breast cancer. It's like, well, you have all this, these mammogram images laying around, so you take them and you train a model on them. This, these tend to be business models where people are performing a task and you think, well, um, I don't have a data set of what these people are doing, but I could get one by watching them do it for a while. And so by recording what they do, you can start to build the data set and then you can use that to train your model. And so if you take plot keepers as an example, what they do is they, they constantly train on the next task and the next task. And so the business model, the services, the software model starts looking mostly like a services model with services margins, but then you automate 3% of the tasks and then another 4% and then 7%. And, you know, you, you sort of eat into the amount of labor that, that humans have to do and improve your gross margins use fewer humans, but you might keep the interface to the user, whatever that is, to the customer, you might keep that the same. Got it. And, and do you see that, 
do you see that almost becoming a product for accountants where it's it's eliminating non-strategic thinking work and it's automating that as you talked about the work stack right so it's different tasks and activities happen on a daily basis but you know there's probably 10 of those <laughs> receipt tracking <coughs> activities for every one time when you start thinking about okay how do i write down this expense you know things that you really want your accountant working on you know for bottom line is that how you see it is it's it's more of an ai assisting the the accountants or is it really like a complete removal of the human accountant from the equation? Um, and so, so I think it's both, right? I think a lot of the, a lot of the grunt work of reporting these kinds of um, business details goes away. Uh, so I'll give you a little, let me give you like another example, right? Um, which is sort of customer support automation. So my last company, Tala, uh, was in this space. And the idea is when a, when a ticket comes in, let's say you have 60 people on your support team, there's a good chance. I mean, there are, there are a fair number of tickets that come in that are new and novel problems, or maybe you've launched a new product and here's a novel uh, support issue. But a lot of them are the same issues that come up time and time again. Maybe you as a support rep haven't seen that issue yet, or maybe you saw it a long time ago and you don't remember how to find it. But you should be able to teach a machine that if I've solved an issue for one customer one time, the machine should be able to repeat the solution or some variant of the solution for the customer going forward. And so, so that's another use case where you can take some of the, you know, at, at, at Tala, we used to see customers, uh, some of our customers would save one, two, three million dollars a year in support costs because they could suddenly do 20% more tickets in, uh, you know, in a month. Got it. Got it. So you also said in, in one of your, your recent newsletters that, quote, you know, AI is everywhere. Everybody will need it. And that's a pretty big group of companies and people, especially if we think outside of, you know, we're both here in Boston area, lots of tech around us and stuff. But mm -hmm. I was, you know, not having grown up here, I remember, you know, Boston's, to me, it's, it's the exception, the community that we're in, it's, it's the exception as opposed to the rule. And I'm curious, how, how much do you believe in that AI is everywhere and everyone will need it? Like, why, why does every company need this particular tool? Well, I, I don't know that uh, I assume by particular tool you mean sort of AI, um, because it's a ubiquitous technology like the internet, right? Mm -hmm. And so um, when the internet came about, I mean, it's impacted almost every business in some way, shape, or form. Uh, even if even if all it did was you know make it easier for you to reach your customers or whatever, that's still you know pretty different. But the reason that AI is so interesting is because what you effectively have now is software models that don't just execute a task but they can learn from that execution process and change how they execute. And, and so unless you're in a static business, like if you're in a business where you're like, yeah, we bought a software package 15 years ago and we haven't had to change a thing about it, no new configuration, no new updates, like nothing's changed, then you're not gonna need it. But if you, if you are changing things and your business is changing, which is most businesses these days, and it's gonna help to have models around that you know, can learn and grow and adapt, and I think as we get better with different data types, like not just text and, and, and images, but, you know, more and more types of data types, I think, uh, I think every business is going to deploy AI at some stage of their business. Mm -hmm. I, would you agree? I mean, the general sentiment I get, you know, we're recording this in January 2020, but the general sense I get is that overall putting these models and AI solutions is is pretty difficult still the you know the surveys on this show that 
you know, the success success rate for deploying models into productions, at least in internal, you know, companies is quite low. And I'm curious, like, you know, how much do you think that the the gap between now and when AI is actually a uh, almost like an oxygen, right? It's like having uh, you worked in backup, right? So it's like yeah. your infrastructure, right? It's supposed to just be like oxygen. You don't think about it. It's just there. When is yeah, it? You, how? What's that gap like? And what? What's the journey going to look like to get to that point where it's it's just like oxygen? Well, I think you're going to have a good ten to fifteen year period, much like you did for the early internet. And here's why: because People misapply AI. So if I look at where companies are applying AI right now, it tends to be where you have the most progressive executive in the company. So you have somebody who's like, oh, we should be forward thinking, we should, we should do AI, and how can we apply it to this? And they're, they're, not looking at, uh, they're not looking at what's the actual best use of AI for their business, right? Where could you really apply it to have the most economic impact? And uh, and there are a lot of people that have thought about it that way. You know, I wrote a blog post a couple of years ago based on a talk that I gave at, um, at, a, at a launch scale conference. And it's called the PAC framework for deploying AI. And that stands for predict, automate, and classify, which are three things AI can do really well. And I encourage people in that post to look across your customer set, your business operations, and your core product and make a box, put those three things on one side, on the other side of the box with the other you know, horizontal axis, you're gonna put, you know, predict, automate, classify, and then fill in each box. Where could you predict things for your customers? Where could you automate things for your customers, right? Where could you classify things about your core product, right, that might be beneficial? You won't have a thing in every box, but that's how you can start to think through what are the applications of AI, uh, you know, to my business. And then when you have those things in your boxes, you start to think about, well, which ones will have the most strategic impact? And do I have the data set to be able to do them? Some of the ideas you'll have are like, wow, it'd be really awesome if we could automate this piece of our business operations. That'll be you know, an idea in one of your boxes, but you won't be able to do it because you won't have a data set to train a machine learning model on. And so you'll have to either work to get that data set or just wait until somebody else figures that problem out. And so a lot of this is just going to take, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just one of those big projects where we're going to have to record a lot more data about the world so that we can do more AI on you know, the world and in every business and everything else. And that, that's going to take a decade or more. Yeah, I, I like the framing of that, that framework. And I, I wonder, tell me what you think, if the part of the challenge is also understanding, you know, we have this, we have this idea and it's not binary. It's not, do we have the data or not to build a model for this? It's, we have some of the data or this data is partially complete. And then you get into this thing where it's like, is it worth building a model that's can kind of predict a little bit of stuff? And then you, and then you've got this issue of like, does the, you know, does an employee trust the value that it says, you know, set the dial to this for the factory floor, whatever the heck, whatever the heck it is, it, it becomes this air, this very gray area of, is there enough data and insight here to actually matter here so you because you can get the technical modeling part done right but i feel like sometimes there's still this disconnect which is how do we tie this to business value and is this small project enough or do we have to buy it off 
the giant thing with the full robust data set and all, you know, we need to know everything about our customers before we can actually do this. Like, do you see this as binary or, or is it more like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, it's definitely, it's definitely a continuum, right? And, 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 you know, sort of two points that I'll make on that. One is that one of the problems people have with deploying AI is that these models are probabilistic, right? Software has been binary in terms of its output, right? It's been, it's, it's this or it's that. And now you have these models where it's like, if I'm, if I'm going to train a model to say, um, you know, uh, is this a cat or a dog, right? In a picture, you know, that model might be right 88% of the time. And is that 88% good enough? Well, if you're having humans review it, it probably is because it makes it much faster than the humans happen to look at every picture and categorize it themselves. Now the humans can just, you know, click, yes, 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 it's a dog, dog, dog. Oh, there's, there's one I have to fix, right? So, so, so maybe instead of having, so let me, get, let me give you a concrete example. I'm an investor in a company called SmartVid. And what SmartVid does is they look at imagery from construction sites. And there are many things they can determine from these images, but um, people take pictures of things like, let's say you're going to put some, some rebar inside some, and then pour concrete over it, right? Well, now, how do you know how much rebar was in there and if you did it according to spec? Well, you know, you take a picture of it before you pour the concrete. And so there are things like that now where, um, so there are a bunch of construction site images and people may use those to look at, you know, validate the construction plan, look for equipment that may be sitting and unused, look for safety violations. And so they have humans who sit there and look at all these construction images to figure out, is there anything important from this image? Um, you know, if you can create a model to do that, the model doesn't have to be 100%. If the model can just narrow it down to like, don't look at these 10,000 images, look at these 400, like it saves you a lot of time. And yeah, some of the 400 might not be right, but it's good enough, right? So that's, this is just one, one application or one problem, I should say, is that this probabilistic output that the model isn't 100% accurate confuses humans. Uh, we haven't learned to work with um, as well as we should have. The second thing to your point on data is it's a fascinatingly uh, interesting new industry around synthetic data that's bringing, bringing up to fix this problem. So I'll give you an example of a synthetic data use case. Let's say you have the feature where you unlock your phone with your face. And I'm the company that makes that, that software piece. And I am getting reports, I'm getting bug reports that my model doesn't work very well. It doesn't unlock your phone when you have glasses on. It doesn't unlock your phone when you're in a bar and the lighting is low. Well, I, what are my options? I can go improve my model by getting another 10,000 pictures of people with glasses or 10,000 pictures of people in dark lighting in a bar. Or if I have pictures of you, I can probably Photoshop glasses on you and then stick that in the model. I can probably change the lighting in Photoshop on your face and stick that in the model, right? And, and train the model on that. So you could use the synthetic data in some cases to build out and improve your model. Now, it won't work in everything. Like if you're trying to generate natural language, you know, sentences using synthetic data, that doesn't work very well. But there are some use cases where synthetic data can work very well. We're given one data point. You know how to create a bunch of data points around it that are good for your model. And so my belief is that every technology stack is going to have a workflow built into it in the future where um, when you get a report that your model is not performing as expected, you'll be able to easily generate synthetic data to account for that discrepancy and improve the performance of your model. So there's the accuracy of the model, right? But I guess 
I guess one of the things that I feel like I hear quite frequently to, to use your analogy of the cement and the rebar is starting with photos of cement being poured over, you know, wall frames with rebar and the technical team saying, does anyone care about pictures of cement? But I, I'm not sure, but we can, we can make a prediction about whether it was poured right. And then there's a business person on the other hand, scratching their head thinking like, okay, what would I use this for? And, you, <laughs> and so you yeah. have models being built that way where it's like, it doesn't matter. It's 92% accurate because someone still doesn't know why they need that. Do you, <laughs> so I, do you yeah, feel like there's that, a gap getting, getting to the, is cement the right thing to care about first? Yeah, no, that's a great point, right? Which is there's a gap right now between the business use cases of AI and the, the, the places it's get adop- getting adopted in an organization. It's getting adopted where somebody thinks it's cool or where there's a thing they know they can do. So somebody say, like to your point about concrete, somebody say, we have a lot of data on this thing. Let's just make a machine learning model on that. And you're like, well, is that model useful? Yeah. What they should really be doing is classify all the business, all the things we're like, hey, if we could predict that are here, or if we could automate these things, that would be really useful. And then go through and figure out, do you have the data for any of them? And if you don't, is it easy data to get? Could you run a, a process for three or four or five months and collect enough data to build a good model? But I think having that buy-in, this, this lack of buy-in is part of the problem, right? Which is uh, so many AI projects turn out to be stupid and useless. And then, you know, if you're, uh, if you're old school and you don't believe in AI or you don't understand it, and then, then once you see a project that's stupid and you go, well, we tried AI and it, it was useless, so we're not you know, we're not going to do it. Right. Yeah. You can't throw the baby out with the bathwater, but I, I, I understand that. I, I'm curious, do you have, do you have a fair amount of pretty lousy stuff coming in the door <laughs> to take a look at? Or would you say, uh, you know, a lot of them are, are fairly robust in, in terms of a business and technology fit? Well, the biggest problem I, I think you have is you, you just have a lot of companies that are, that are features of something bigger, right? And so somebody will look at, a, somebody will say, oh, there's a, you know, there's a tool that does, um, you know, some software tool. We're going to build an AI version of that. And what you'll find is that, you know, just the AI component is usually, if you're going to take classic startup theory of like do one thing and do it well, most of the one things that you're going to do are not going to be full companies, right? So let's say you're going to do AI CRM. Well, where in the CRM are you going to apply AI? Because if you right. do it everywhere, that's a huge undertaking, mm-hmm. right? And um, you're going to have to build multiple models. You're going to have to build a model uh, about each task that the software can do. Um, and so it's like, okay, we're going to start with a very stripped down thing. We're going to do this one thing that CRM doesn't do well, and we're going to do that in machine learning. And it's like, well, then your likely output, your likely exit is to just get acquired into a CRM company. So it's not mm-hmm. that attractive from a venture perspective. So I think it's really hard to find those opportunities that are good for AI as places to start. Um, I see a lot of opportunities where you know, people are building things that the big companies are going to build into their products eventually, and that, that's not where you want to start with AI. Got it, got it. Yeah, the, uh, I think the question of so that at the end of sentences is really useful here, right? When someone says, you know, I want to build you know, we're going to do an AI version of CRM. And I would always say, so that, yeah, what, <laughs> you know, yeah, so exactly. that you have to focus on the outcome, right? Not, not just the output, the thing you want to make, but it's supposed to enable some outcome. And we talk about that a lot on this show, you know, it doesn't matter if you built the CRM thingy, 
because no one knows what it's for. <laughs> right. So, so, so like just off the top of my head, if I was looking for CRM, right, I think the place that I would look would be either there's, there's, there's two big problems that I see in CRM. One is the, the predictive value in your pipeline is very low. So are you going to use AI to predict, you know, deals that are most likely to close? And then actually part of the reason it's low is because of problem, your main problem in CRM, which is data entry, right? Which is people don't enter data. It's hard to do. It's boring. Salespeople don't want to do it. They want to sell. So, you know, but there's a perfect example. If you're going to, if you're going to say, well, I'm going to build an AI powered CRM, it's data entry much easier um, because it uses a bunch of AI to maybe auto format the data for you or uh, guess what the data is after the phone call. So you don't have to enter it all. And we just correct where the CRM goes wrong. You know, I think that's tough as a standalone product because you still have to build all the other stuff that CRM does. Right. You have to be an add-on to CRM. And so what you really have to do is you have to pick a market segment that's where, where you could probably go with a custom CRM where you made data, where data entry is just a huge, huge pain point, even bigger than most you know, sales organizations, and maybe start there. And maybe that would give you a roadmap to build out a CRM, a more generalized CRM over the long term. Yeah. It's interesting you say it that way because for companies and you know data strategists and people working as an employee internally at a company, that sounds like it could be very much the right way to approach a small incremental value of AI that's not trying to boil the ocean. It's simply fix that one piece of the CRM, make the data entry process a little bit easier for your team so they can spend time more selling. I don't know. What do you think? Like It sounds like a good strategy for if that's not your whole business. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, but I think it's a, it's a lot of the reason, you know, AI, a lot of the reason that AI is, is going to be won by big companies in lots of markets is because you, you need the data and you need the users to train the models and, and, and you need the usage and it's hard to bootstrap that. And so, you know, you're going to see a lot of use cases where you just, you can't compete against the big guys because by the time you get any kind of traction, they're going to realize that it's valuable and they're just going to turn on their data sets and they're going to, do so much better and crush you and they're going to have the distribution and everything else. So you have to really, really be selective in your, your, your use cases if you're going to start an AI company. Mm -hmm. Have you seen examples in your pitches or, or some of your portfolio investments where getting the, getting the design piece right or the user experience piece right was important for conveying the value to the customer? And I'm not just talking about marketing, but, but rather making, you know, really aligning the experience with the work or the tasks of the person that's actually sitting down to use the system. Have you had any examples of that? Yeah. So one of the things that we did at Tala when I was still there was we put a metric in that showed um, the efficiencies gained from the AI, right? So, so we would track, you know, maybe like the number of tickets that somebody had coming in and kind of show you how many tickets were automatically answered by Tala and what would those have cost? you had a, uh, a human do it, right? Or I think you're starting to see a lot of workflows that have suggestions in them, uh, pre-population uh, of, of data or, you know, something like Grammarly, where uh, it's probably a good example where you, you understand the value because the AI corrects you and you can correct the AI you know, back and forth and the model can learn. Uh, so I think those are really, really interesting. And then the, the other interesting thing about AI from a design perspective is, it's influencing the entire technology stack from hardware to infrastructure to, uh, you know, middleware and, and application layer stuff. And so everybody at every layer is having to rethink 
that user experience. Because even if you get down to, like I've done three AI chip investments, right? Like hardware computer chips. And, and the reason I've done those is because AI workloads don't work well on CPUs. They need different kinds of processing. And so that's opened up this market for new kinds of chips. But the user experience around how to use that chip is very different than what you're used to today. You know, we've been on these same chip, chip architectures for 40, 50 years. So those chip people have to think about, you know, their user interfaces. How do you program that chip? How do you, uh, you know, compile stuff into it? How do you integrate it into other electronics? Um, and so I, I've seen these, these design problems are all up and down the stack. It's really, really great time, I think, to work in this space. A lot of really cool problems to solve. Yeah, I think it's interesting that you bring that up because I think sometimes, you know, people focus on the graphical user interfaces, their only perception, you know, at least data people sometimes that it's data viz or whatever. And it's like, no, 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 no. It, it can be actually like designing the API to interact with the chip. And, you know, the result might be some documentation of an API, but you've actually gone out and figured out what do the developers want to interact with? How do they need that model in, in their mental model of how it should work, particularly maybe if they're coming from an old model of how it should be and you're introducing a new one there's that current knowledge and future knowledge gap and you need to close that so to me these are all facets of of you know human-centered design and putting it into into play whether or not there's a you know explicit GUI uh, or something sitting on top yeah well one of the interesting things about designing for AI is you really want to find some way to convey to the user that the tool is getting smarter and learning right because that's that's very important and one of the challenges that, you, that we talk about is is whether or not it's worth it sometimes to even engage in a little bit of what we call AI theater, right? So, so, so maybe taking something that, you know, anytime you design a product, you have these features sometimes that people think they want, that you having built the product, designed the product and like seeing thousands of people use it, you're like, I know you think you want that feature. I'm just going to tell you you're not going to use it. Nobody does. It sounds cool, you know, whatever. And so, but, but in order to make a sale, sometimes you have to build those features. Right? And they're more marketing features than anything else. And so is there an equivalent in the AI space of sort of AI theater, right? Which is like, okay, so I'm going to make this uh, really fancy wow feature that's not that useful, but impresses people in a demo, you know, just, just to make it seem like the tool is, is smart. Got it. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I definitely, there was a great slide going around. I don't know if you, you probably saw it on LinkedIn and it was something like, you know, if you saw it in a slide deck, it's, it's probably AI. And if you saw it in a, in developer documentation, it was probably Python. You know, yeah. Was, you know, kind of talk about, you know, everyone's trying to plop the AI into their marketing language, but, but ultimately the time will come where it's like, that's nice. What do I get for paying you, you know, 10 times as much for your AI based solution? You know, it comes back to value regardless of the hammer that you're going to hit, hit the solution with the, uh, this whole, uh, space around AI and everyone's trying to move quickly and show value soon. What's the challenge in terms of, you know, making sure the work that we're doing is, is ethical and, you know, there's all kinds of stuff going on, obviously with people's private data and, and real concerns in this place. There's now guidelines from, you know, the U S government put out. It's, I think it was the first kind of stack of rough guidelines there, some of which have been punched already <laughs> a little bit. Can you, can you talk to me about balancing the innovation side with, you know, the privacy issues and the ethical issues? And, and so maybe we don't have a repeat of what's kind of gone on with social media, for example, for the last 10 years. How do, you know, what is the, we don't want to really run into whatever the 10 year out version of AI looks like on the negative side. 
Yeah, you've got a bunch of interesting problems, right? Which one is that it, um, I mean, just if you take the AI bias problem in and of itself, that's a tough one for companies to address, right? Because they're so like, let me give you two competing examples. You know, there have been these studies that show, for example, when you're looking at who, what, what criminals get paroled, there are things that show like, um, you know, right after lunch, when the parole board is you know, not hungry and maybe is thinking more clearly and the blood sugar is up or whatever, uh, they're more likely to be in a good mood and give people parole than right before lunch. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's a study somewhere. I don't exactly remember. Let's say you train a machine learning model on that. And the re- machine learning model now picks up on this weird bias in there and equates it to something else because you can always find correlations. And now you've perpetuated this bias, you know, all through the system. Um, and so, so that's the thing where you are like, okay, like we, we need to fix this, right? Because certain, uh, you know, certain demographics or, or, or whatever are really like suffering and it's, and it's not their fault. And, uh, or, or who trains the data, right? I mean, if you, if you, uh, it, you know, if you have a bunch of men versus women, train your data sets, then like, yeah, you might get different outputs and you might perpetuate the biases that one sex or the other has through those. But there are other issues where you have bias, possibly, but should you try to fix it? So an example is like, you know, there was a big statement made about um, this natural language processing model. It was like, well, it's much more likely to associate the word nurse with woman than it is a man. Well, if you look at the labor force statistics, 91% of nurses are women and 9% are men. So if you want your model to be accurate, that's then you face this question of like, okay, do we want to we want to train the model that 91% of the time, most of the time, it should equate a nurse with a woman because that's what the labor market looks like, or do we need to make it 50-50 or gender neutral somehow because maybe that'll help more men be nurses or you know you know, I don't know but like how do you since there are bias issues like that that are really complicated you have these issues of like what if AI uncovers I mean some biases. Uh, and stereotypes are true. And so what happens if AI covers one that we're really uncomfortable with, right? We haven't learned as a society that, you know, just because a stereotype is true of a population, it doesn't mean you never know for any given individual if that stereotype is true. So you still can't treat people differently, you know, as individuals. And so I think it's going to take a lot of education to sort of work through these issues with people. And then, you know, and that, that's just one bias issue. You have, um, you know, you, you have ethical issues about, uh, you know, control, um, you have ethical issues about uh, autonomy uh, and who's liable. Um, you have safety issues about whether AI gets too powerful. I mean, are you going to, AI is going to run more and more work processes. Are you going to let it run chemical processes? And then what if it messes up and it blows up a plant, right? Are you going to let it run nuclear centers? And uh, it just gets to be really, I mean, there's just tons and tons of issues that are coming that we're not prepared to deal with as a society. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I think it's, I think part of it's also the, the conscious business decision to use, you know, for example, your nurse data set. I think part of it is like, you get into these gray, as you call it, the continuum, right? The gray area where it's a business decision to decide whether or not you're going to use that data set when you know that it's going to not call most men nurses and most women are. To me, that's where part of the issue is here. And, and I, I think I think diversity in teams becomes really important and and it's some you know it's something I advocate with with clients you know that are working in this space is trying to get some outside perspectives on your work because you really can't know what your own world your own worldview is just your norm and it's really hard to step outside of that unless you're a researcher and you're constantly 
doing that, but you need to get those outside opinions on it and, and ask yourself, do you want to see yourself in the news? You know, if this decision got wrong, do you want to see yourself? Yeah. That's what Kenneth Bowles talks about, the news test, right? How would you feel if your family saw this written up uh, in the Times? <laughs> yeah, and, and like, and, and you have to be super thoughtful because sometimes, like, you could still build a racist machine learning model even if you take race out of it, right? Because the because names tend to, you know, cluster with racial identity to some extent. You might find that a model keys in on a Latin last name or an Asian last name or something or mm -hmm. Islamic last name, right? And uh, and even though you don't have race in there, it still clusters in a certain way. So you have to be really, really careful. Yeah, I think even even at the, you know, thinking about when, when I think about full experiences, as you were talking about the whole work stack, it's even the raters, right? If you've got, you know, human people that are rating your data for training sets, it's just even simple questions like, is this a car or not? And you see a picture of like a Jeep Grand Cherokee and it's like, well, I guess it's a car. I mean, it's an SUV, but that's not a choice. So I guess it's a car. You know, yeah. and it's like they don't mean anything wrong with that. But right there, because of the way the question was posed, you're potentially training a whole new set of data there. And so I think part of this is like you need to be interfacing with your raters as well and know when was the last time you ran into a situation where you weren't sure and you rated something like what was that friction or, you know, tell me about it sometimes so that you can adjust even at that stage. There, there's so many places here to get to get right and to get wrong. <laughs> Yeah, and that's that's a perfect example that you just gave of where you need a business process that somebody can flag that and you can figure out, okay, do we want to label Jeeps as cars or do we need another category for this model? Like a lot of times it's it's like survey design, right? Sometimes you set up your survey and it doesn't tell you what you thought because it was poorly designed. And and I think a lot of this training and classification, uh, I think this happens a lot in in machine learning models. Yeah, yeah. I know we've only got a few minutes left here. I I, I wanted to ask you about, you know, as a product designer, and I've worked in a ton of tech companies, you know, and clients in this space, and the the product management, engineering, and product design trio is really powerful. I think it's like the power trio of like if it was a rock band, that's who would be in it when you're building out products. And right. and even Gartner recently said, you know, their their chief data officer, you know, version four, the the kind of model of that was shifting from projects to product. The irony there to me is that the role of product management for data products is entirely missing in that space. And I feel like that's part of the reason why large companies that aren't spinning out, you know, tech companies aren't able to do this well because there's no one sitting at the helm of whose job is it to, to make sure that this AI or the model or the data product actually delivers some business value. Do you feel like that's a, a gap as as well, I and mean, maybe you don't see that as much because of the work that you're doing, but I'm just curious, like, if you have an opinion on that. No, I do, actually, because I, I, I think it's odd, but product management is one of those things that has lagged a lot of, a lot of, uh, formal product management, I should say, has lagged a lot of trends, right? Like, it was slow to agile sometimes, you know, outside of tech companies and, and everything else, and there's not a lot of, um, you know, it's only in the last few years that you've really been able to start getting get more formal training on it, but there aren't college degree programs anywhere uh, that I'm aware of, um, or if there are, there aren't very many. And so it's, um, you know, the, the sort of training for it is really, really uh, weak in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And and so, of course, that's going to, uh, you know, apply over to AI. And then you don't have a lot of ideas yet. Well, uh, Zeta Ventures, Z-E-T-T-A, 
uh, wrote a great post, someone there a couple years ago, I think it was Jocelyn, wrote a great post on what they call model market fit. You know, so you know the idea of product market fit, but you have to think about your AI model and does it do what you need it to do for your customer and does it do it well enough to make a difference? Because if your model's not that good, then, what, then, you know, then what's the point? So Absolutely. Yeah. I think it's, you know, whatever the title is that you go, I, I think this is a place that there's a lot of room for improvement is, is ensuring that someone has some bottom line accountability for that. And, and, and what I keep hearing is that, you know, this, it's like a tennis game, the, the data people think it's the, the frontline business manager's job to do that. And the business manager is like, you guys are the data science people tell us what's possible. <laughs> and so it's yeah. like toss the ball back and forth. Who's going to actually find a good problem to go out and solve and, and, you know, the more I'm hearing it is, is that, that the expectation is growing a lot more on the data technology people, especially in leadership, to take that role of, of thinking product. And I think this Gartner, Gartner uh, CDO version four kind of speaks to that of the importance of having a, you need to understand your business, you need to understand the human factors involved and, and who's going to use it, how are they going to use it, what do they need it for, and not just like, tell us what you need built and we'll nail it. <laughs> yeah. Like I'll give you one simple, you, you know, we, we, we need more heuristics for how as a product manager you think about AI and, and building it into products. And like, I can give you one simple one that you could use, which is if you find yourself in a situation where you have a lot of data about something and you have a lot of humans that have to look at that data and do something with it. And you think it's relatively scripted. I, I only need humans to do it because it would take so long to write out all the rules, mm -hmm. but there are rules then that's usually the kind of situation that it's really good to put a machine learning model at. The machine can learn the rules from looking at the data. And so that's the kind of thing I would tell a product manager that, hey, when you're, when you're looking at products and you find yourself in that situation, look to machine learning to solve some of it. So, you know, this it, is probably a blog post I should write somewhere along the line. It should be like, here, here are the six heuristics that a AI product manager should have. Yeah, I think that, I think that would be useful because I think I think the hunt for good, at least there's a hunt for good problems. And I think the fact that that's even understood, that it's not just a hunt for the right tech, I think there is a genuine hunt for good use cases and, and people need help with that. So uh, I think that'd be a great, great article. I'd look forward to it. So I know we got to, to wrap up soon, but I was just curious, do you have any, do you have any closing thoughts for people, you know, data strategists or people working in this AI data science field on, on ensuring that they deliver good experience and good value with, with AI today, like closing thoughts? I would just say two things. Number one, don't pay attention to the AI news because it's mostly researchy and it's mostly hype. And most of the real interesting applied stuff gets buried and doesn't get enough news. So, so make sure you're paying attention to the right stuff. And number two, this is an area where you really need to back and forth with the customer. You're giving the customer some ways to do some new things. Like change some of those in behavior. And so a big part of, of designing a product that includes AI is that, for example, if you're going from a binary output to a probabilistic output, does your user understand that? And are they okay with that? And will they work with that? Or are you just going to make them more confused? And mm -hmm. so you have to constantly, I think, make those trade-offs pretty important. Awesome. Well, I, it's been great to talk to you. This has been Rob May. Um, tell us, uh, Rob, where people can uh, can look you up, follow your work, all those good things. Yeah, so um, so if you want to email me, I'm just rob at pjc.vc, the venture capital firm where I'm a partner. And um, you can also follow me on Twitter at uh, Rob May, R-O-B-M-A-Y. 
Um, and then if you want to, to sign up for my AI newsletter uh, that, that Brian referenced in the beginning, um, it's just inside.com slash AI. Awesome. Well, I will definitely put those in the show links. And uh, thanks for coming on Experiencing Data. It's been really great to talk to you. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right. Cheers. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Experiencing Data with Brian O'Neill. If you did enjoy it, please consider sharing it with the hashtag Experiencing Data. To get future podcast updates or to subscribe to Brian's mailing list, where he shares his insights on designing valuable enterprise data products and applications, visit designingforanalytics.com slash podcast.